So let me set this up. We're going to talk about, if you've got your Bibles, by the way, we're going to be in uh, Ephesians chapter 5. This is just a letter Paul wrote to a region of churches, sort of like the letter to all the churches in Oklahoma City or Oklahoma. And they circulated it around, and he addressed a lot of issues trying to explain what does it look like. We're going to approach two basic questions tonight. One is, what does the Bible say about gender and gender roles? And a little bit we're going to talk about and family. But basically, what does the Bible say about gender roles? And are Christians inevitably out of step with our society? Is it possible to harmonize what we think and what our society thinks? And if so, to what extent can we harmonize those two things? Gender has become a big deal in our society. A lot of historical reasons for that. But the idea of gender, which at once point in our history seemed so simple, is now incredibly complicated. Fundamentally, where our culture is going is there are two really fundamental ideas. But the first one is that gender is an accident of biology. In other words, if you as a human being are not designed, you are the product of a random evolutionary process, then the fact that you are born physically as a male or a female is a somewhat inconvenient accident of biology. In other words, that gender as this random thing is not something that should necessarily bind you. It's just a fact of biology. You see that in some interesting ways, and I'm going to show you one that you may or may not know. I don't know how many of you are Facebook users, and there are a lot of examples. I just picked this one because it's a really easy one to show you to illustrate this point. But uh, if you want to uh, friend me on Facebook, it's on the bottom of the sheet there. Follow, you follow on Twitter. Feel free to do that. I'm not doing uh, some of the other stuff. Those are two are all I can really keep up with. But Facebook, if you're not familiar with it, is a social media. It's just basically a computer application that connects people, lets you share pictures. I mean, that's what it's mainly used for is to, hey, look at my child. They just won an award. You know, I mean, that kind of stuff, right, of what's going on in my life. Very, very useful. But you can put your profile out there. It's really a scheme to get you to put voluntarily all kinds of personal information that if somebody called you on the phone, you would never tell them. So anyway, you put all this personal information out there. Well, one of the things you put out there is your gender. Pretty easy question. I'm used to the M or F. Oh, no. No longer. Facebook has more than 50 gender options. More than 50 gender options. And I know that you are thinking, Terry, that's very interesting. What are some of those gender options? And so I thought I would tell you what some of them are. This is really serious, but my point is, this is an insight into where at least a segment of our society is going around this idea of gender. Is going to unhook the idea of gender from biology. Okay? So, for example, you can flag your status as what gender are you as, this is very traditional, cisgender, which means M or F. In other words, your experience of your gender, and that's an important word, is that you're saying, Terry, I thought gender was a biological thing. 
No, I mean, that's not the, the thinking there. The idea is gender is something that you experience emotionally and cognitively, and if it happens to match your biological gender, that's your thing. So if you get on Facebook, check that. If your experience of your gender matches your biological gender at birth, that's your basic male or female. Another choice is agender. In other words, your experience of gender is neutral. You don't identify with any gender label. In other words, your experience of gender is neither male nor female. It's simply genderless. And that's an option that you can put, is that that's not my experience. Regardless of what your biology is, this is how you experience it. Another option, kind of the opposite, one is, agender, no gender is my experience. You identify with both male and female genders at different times, okay? So the idea of being a bi-gender experience is regardless of your biology, you, would, you experience yourself as being male or female at different times. Another is transgendered. This is your experience of gender is different than your birth sex. In other words, I'm born biologically a male, but I experience myself as being a female. And along with that, you have statuses of male to female, female to male, meaning I would like my biology and my experience of gender to match. So you could sort of be in process, right, of converting this ex gender experience. These are all legit, I didn't make this up, these are all legitimate ideas that express our societal idea about gender. Once you unhook your experience from biology, then you have a lot of choices. Another is pangender. That is, you identify as a third gender, something new that combines aspects of male and female but is neither male nor female. Now your biology is obviously one of those two limited choices, but your experience of it is something different, something unique. Uh, gender questioning. If by this point you're confused, <laughs> check, check this option. It says, I'm still trying to figure out how I experience gender in my life. In other words, I'm questioning. Uh, what, what does gender mean to me? I used to think it was biology. I no longer think it's biology. I think it's something that I experience independent of biological issues, and I'm questioning that. And then, of course, you can always check other, you can always check neither, and those are both options. I do not know what other is, and uh, I'm not exactly sure what neither is, but those are gender options. I, I do not consider myself to be either male, female, or any one of these, I have another category, or neither. Uh, neither male nor female applies to me. So the, this is true story. This is reflective of a way of thinking in our society about gender, if you unhook it from biology. This explains, by the way, I'm just gonna give you one example because there's a lot of this also, but you may be familiar that there is uh, some laws in place, in progress, being challenged, etc. but in California and Maine are the ones that have been in the news, primarily with school children about what restrooms they can use 
and what sports they can participate in, and that being based on their gender experience and not their biology. For example, students in California who identify themselves as male, for example, even though their biology is female, must be allowed to use the men's restroom and participate in sports uh, or other activities that are male. In other words, the experience of gender is the key, not the biology. But I want you to understand why is that happening? It's happening because of this fundamental issue of redefining gender as something you experience, not as your biology. Needless to say, I'm going to go ahead and do a contrast here before I talk about some of the implications. This is not the biblical idea of gender. The biblical idea of gender is very well defined, and it's, it's a very strict purpose, and probably more purpose to it than you uh, probably tend to think about. But here's the basic, one of the basic verses, the creational foundation of the idea of gender. God said, let us make mankind, that's a better translation to say mankind, and the word there, by the way, is Adam. Let us make Adam, which is the generic word for humanity. Let us make humanity in our image, in our likeness. We're going to let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, etc. So God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, the image of God we've talked about before, and that's pretty significant because in ancient times, kings saw themselves as the representative of deity. In fact, in Jesus' time, the Roman emperors already thought of themselves as gods. And so when they coined a likeness, they would say, that is the image of God. Judaism, God's people have always been really uniquely different because what the Bible says is God's image is born by everybody, not just a king. That In some sense, we are all royalty. We are all image bearers of divinity. It's a really profoundly powerful statement, but it's not our subject for tonight. But what I want to talk about here is the idea that as part of the original intentional creative design, God says, not only will I make you in my image, I will make them male and female. In other words, gender gets introduced into creation in a very intentional way. So what you're going to see with Christianity, Judaism as well, but we're going to talk about Christianity, is the idea that gender is a design. It's part of God's design. It is purposeful. Culture, or at least some element of cultural thinking, is that biology, you are random. You are not a designed being. Consequently, gender is not something that, that you are bound to biologically. It is arbitrary. You may choose your gender. Bible says, no, you are designed, and gender is part of a plan or part of a design. So right from the very beginning, the Bible has a really different view of what gender is about. So we're going to come back to that and talk about that in a little more detail, but I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the implications of that. So from a societal point of view, in other words, where our society is heading, 
if biology is accidental and gender is not tied to your biology, then the roles, gender roles of male and female are also arbitrary and artificial. They tend to be based on an archaic cultural idea and consequently can be changed at will. In other words, if your gender identity isn't tied to your biology, your gender role is certainly not tied to your biology, and it's certainly not tied to any archaic cultural idea. That your gender role, how you behave, that your gender, your physical uh, attributes are self-oriented and self-defining. In other words, your gender doesn't bring with it any role whatsoever in the big scheme of things. You define your role in the big scheme of things. That's an inherent idea. It's not entirely wrong idea, but it's an inherent idea if you disconnect gender from biology. At that point, you can experience it any way you want. And consequently, any attempt to define a role for you is oppressive. That's why, I'm just going to go back to this one example, but you'll see many of these in our culture. That's why in California, if you tell a little boy or girl, meaning a biological boy or girl, that they must then conform to boy roles, as in use the men's restroom, that is oppressive. You are not allowing them to self-define their roles. Does that make sense? That's a pretty simple point of view, but I want you to understand why is this happening? It's happening because it comes from those kinds of ideas. Well, the Bible has a very different place that it ends up on gender roles because gender is purposeful. It is part of some bigger design. So gender complements the design. Now, Christians also think to a certain extent that gender is not inherently a functional issue. Meaning, just because ancient societies were, uh, think back in the day when uh, men, by and large, more muscles, I mean, this is a biological fact, more muscles, etc., you know, out there wrestling with uh, and chasing after animals and bring them back home. Women have babies, men don't. Always regretted that, not. Uh, basically, you know, women have babies and functions. In other words, there are biological differences in functions, and consequently, gender roles got defined around those. Make sense? Patriarchal societies are rooted in the fact that my physical gender means I am stronger, faster, whatever, I will be in charge. My gender says I have the babies, which means this race doesn't do anything without me, right? Okay, so in other words, Christianity, though, is not tied to that. The purpose and creation that you see for gender is not, okay, we've got to have somebody in charge, right? And so men made you to run faster, so you're always going to be in charge of the women. Christianity doesn't think that, but it does think that roles complement design. Here's the realism behind gender roles with Christianity. Christianity understands that God's creation has undergone a deterioration, and that's the fall. And I'll show you a couple of pictures because I think they just vividly capture this. This is Michelangelo's The Creation of Adam. 
And well, the thing about this picture, I'm sure you're familiar with it, is the gap between God and Adam. And to me, it represents that even shortly after creation, you remember how the fall, and you notice God pursuing Adam, and Adam in some sense retreating from God. And that's what sin does. This is the Christian view of the world. There's purpose, things happen, and there's a process, there's a plan happening here. And so you see an alienation from the creator. You also see, and I like this painting because it's, trust me, it's the most modest that you can find of Adam and Eve. Uh, this is a more modern painting, but it really captures the Christian idea of the interplay of gender a little bit. Not only does the fall, our disobedience, our self-centeredness, our I want what I want, I will experience life the way I want, you're gonna see this contrast between society and the Bible, led to alienation not only from God, you see the two of them sitting alone, head down, they're alienated from God, but notice how they're sitting. They are alienated from each other. What happens? in the garden after they sin. God comes and he says, hey, where are you guys? And so they show up and Adam, the man, what does he do? Yeah, he mans up, he says, yeah, I made a mistake. No, he doesn't, he points at the woman. And he said, hey, the woman you gave me, she gave me something to eat, I ate it, you know, it's not my fault, right? They hide, they blame. How do you think Eve feels at that point? <gasps> How could you say that? First fight in history, all right, first marital fight in history is what happens there? Alienation. So the closeness is they are thrown together in a hostile world, destined to be united. That is the design, but they are not. They're not quite facing the same direction, are you? Are they? They're created as a unit, and sin has broken it. And not only alienates us from God, but it has alienated Adam and Eve man and womankind. It's just a beautiful picture. This is the Christian understanding of why, how we get where we are with genders. Christians agree, let me just get this off the table, Christians do not believe gender roles are as trivial as simply culturally defined roles. For example, Christians are fine with equal pay for equal work. In other words, well, let's see, progressive people in our culture think that women doing the same job as men should be paid the same, but Christians don't think. That's not the case at all. That's not what gender roles are about in Christianity. The idea of education, should we educate just the boys or should we educate the boys and girls? Of course you're gonna educate everybody. We're all image bearers of God, right? In other words, I want to just remove some of the nonsense off the table. Christians don't have really culturally conditioned gender roles. That's not the basis for what we think of gender roles. We think of gender roles in a much more profound way. So we agree with the culture. We agree with our society on a number of things about gender. Here is the basis, though, for our disagreement. Okay, let me tell you a story that you probably heard. This is gonna illustrate the reason, the fundamental basis for our disagreement. Group of people get together. And God says, look, I want you guys to design a creature for me. So we're gonna get a committee together. And I want you to design a creature that is really great at transportation, that is powerful, that you can harness to ride, that you can plow with, that can really make your life a lot better. And we're gonna call it a horse. 
And so I want you guys to go design a horse for me. And so they go away, they have several committee meetings, and they come back and they say, this is what we got for you. Yeah, you've heard the old saying, is a camel is a horse designed by a committee. Why is that? That's because you don't tend to see cooperation in this process. You see, well, I want this. All right, add that in. Well, I want that. Add that in. In other words, you know how committees work. You tend to get the lowest common denominator and kind of the worst. Why? Because there's competition. Well, I want this. Well, I want that. Well, slap it all together. What do we got? We got a camel. All right? This thing's going to be hard to ride. I'll just tell you, they're incredibly hard to ride. That's the fundamental difference, the way I would characterize it, is in a self-defining idea of gender. In other words, I will tell you how I experience it. I will be who I want to be. I will not be a slave to biology. My role will be what I decide. That is a recipe for competition. And consequently, you see a lot of hostility. God's design, think about this, unity in the garden, sin breaks us apart, and God's redemptive plan, that is the story of the rest of the Bible, is cooperation. That's going to be the basis for the Bible's idea of gender roles, is what unites, what brings about cooperation, whereas the result of the self-centric idea of gender roles is indeed conflict. Okay? That's, I know it's kind of philosophical, but if you think about that just a little bit and watch the newspapers, this is going to explain a lot of things that are like, what in the world are they thinking? This is what our society is thinking. Not all of our society, not all of our culture, but this is definitely the trajectory of our culture. Let me pause, answer a couple questions, because what I want to do now then is get to the main question is, what is the Bible's idea of gender roles? But without that background, you can just collapse into, well, Christians are just old-fashioned and think men are in charge and women aren't. That's yeah, way, way more to this, and I want to contrast it against the, against the culture because you're going to see that Christianity has something really powerful to say about this. Questions? Okay. Um, what... What do you have to say about people who are born with gender body parts of both sexes, and how does this fit with that? Yeah, good question. Uh, androgynous people who have certain uh, sexual characteristics of both, I think that is a biological phenomenon. That is a, it's a very rare, rare thing, uh, just like in any number of other biological uh, short wirings. In other words, that's not the way people are normally intentionally born, but it does happen. And I think then that puts that person in a position to recognize that my understanding of gender has been compromised uh, because of the physical basis for it. I completely uh, understand that in that situation, and that is one of the categories I didn't tell you, but transgendered is actually kind of a broad category. Uh, idea and it encompasses this idea of someone who is androgynous. There are also people who choose to be androgynous who would like to remove uh, secondary sexual characteristics. That does happen. That is a, a biological, I guess you'd call it a mutation, you would call it some kind of uh, miscommunication of the genetic code. An anomaly. An anomaly. That's a better word. Thank you for jumping in there and helping me. Okay, so are you saying that the redefinition of gender roles in society is the work of Satan? 
Now, Satan's two weeks from now. I'm just kidding. I'm telling you I, what I want to point out here, because what I really want to talk about are two questions. What is the biblical idea of gender roles? The problem is it's been so stereotyped. I want to set the answer to this question in the context the Bible wants to set the answer. In other words, let it say what it wants to say. One way to do that is to contrast it. Uh, and I also thought it would be interesting for you to understand where does the thinking come behind where the society is going. It's not very complicated. If you unhook gender from biology, and if you make gender something that you self-define your experience of that whole idea, you can explain a lot of things that happen in our culture. Then you say, well, wait a minute. There's a big difference. The Bible starts from the idea of design. That's the key to gender. It's not about, we're going to talk about wives uh, voluntarily submit to your husbands, husbands love your wife. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But you can't talk about that at all without the backdrop of where Christianity's coming from. And you can't understand what's happening in our society without the context of the thinking behind it. So we will, we'll talk about that. Um, would you say that this is just another example of postmodernism like we see with Caesar, what is truth? That's a good question. My opinion is not directly so, but the idea of, it, it's probably all tied up very much in the self-determination, the idea that I'll decide what's true for me, I'll decide what gender means for me, I'll decide what my role is. In that sense, I think they're related, but philosophically speaking, I don't, I don't see a huge connection there. But yes, I understand why you would say that, is we're gonna redefine everything from my point of view I don't accept that there is any other legitimate controlling point of view. To that extent, yes. Um, have you ever been to the playground at a preschool or been shopping at the mall with your wife? I have done both of those things, yes. It's an interesting question, but yes, I have. Does that make you think there are differences? Does that make me think there are differences in people? This is going to be one of the really interesting points. This is kind of subtle, but I'm glad you asked this. Notice when I describe to you the way the society thinks about gender is it unhooks it from biology, but even a blind man could see in a minute to say the old saying. You know, my dad used to say a blind man could see that in a minute. Now the point is, is this is really obvious. It's obvious that there are differences. But instead of tying them to biology, we're gonna tie them to experience. Because interesting, if indeed gender is self-determined and it's not gonna be biological and I'm not gonna be controlled by that, in other words, we're gonna to make toy guns for girls because it's the right thing to do and we're gonna to make toy dolls for boys, it's the right thing to do and et cetera. In other words, we're not gonna acknowledge that but the very language of gender acknowledges differences. Do you see the subtle silliness of that idea? It, it, even the language of the gender acknowledges, well, I'm gonna experience myself as male even though I'm female. What? You see what I'm saying? If the biology doesn't cause it, you still have to account for the fact that there are differences. Absolutely. I'm gonna make a point, and one of my theses is gonna be is that the societal idea is more ideological than factual. But that has huge implications for you and me too. But yeah, good question. There are differences. 
Well, let's talk about in the context, and the point is, I'm not trying to just cast the society in a, in a bad light. I'm not trying to build a straw man. I really just want you to understand, why in the world are these things happening? They happen from a couple of very simple ideas. If you just unhook a couple of ideas, then you go down this path. The Bible is a much more rich idea. You have the idea of the context of the Christian life being rooted in creation, that gender roles are not really a cultural construct. I know that they can be, and they have been, and men have been pigeonholed in this way, and women have been pigeonholed in that way, and you know, women do laundry and men mow the yard. Those are cultural constructs. They're not biblical mandates, make sense? But there is something really important happening in the Bible. So let's talk about what the Bible says in this passage. Let's start in Ephesians chapter 5. I want to put this in context for you. I'm not, and by the way, we're not going to duck anything, but I want you to understand it in context. Paul begins this section by saying, I want you to look carefully then how you walk. I'm introducing you to yet another translation tonight. Uh, the rest of the time we'll use the English Standard Version. Remember last time it was the New English Translation? English Standard Version is fairly new, very good translation, a little more word for word, a little bit more literal than the New International Version. So get a flavor for that because we're going to use it for the rest of this, uh, this lesson. He says, look carefully then how you live, how you walk. How are you living? Don't be unwise, but be wise. In other words, he's giving some instructions here. He says, the days are evil, so don't be foolish. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't get drunk with wine because that leads to debauchery. That's the path to go down, all that sensuous, self-centered stuff. It's not acknowledging God, but instead be filled with the Spirit. This is the fundamental command that leads all the way through this whole section we're going to talk about, about gender roles. That's interesting. Put it against this concept. As you were created to be unified, right? And you were created, you're commanded to be guided and filled with God's Holy Spirit. Earlier in Ephesians, he talked about how the Holy Spirit leads to unity. Pick up that redemptive idea from the garden. We're alienated by sin. God's plan is to unify us. How's he going to do that? Be filled with the Spirit. God's Spirit works for unity. That's back in chapter 4. All these ideas build on each other. He says, I want you to be filled with the Spirit. Well, how do I do that, Paul? What does that look like? He says, well, let me give you four examples of what that looks like. He said, sing to one another or address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. In other words, go rejoice with each other. You're filled with the Spirit. You're going to be united. One, this is why, by the way, we sing songs in worship. We don't sing songs, and you should talk to Josh if you worship in here. You should talk to the people on the praise team if you worship in there. They don't think they're performing for you. They don't think you are singing to them. We think we are singing to each other out of an exuberance of the Spirit and lifting it up to God. That's what this says. It says this is what the Christian life's about. Living through the Spirit, one of the things you're going to do is you're going to rejoice together in song. You're going to sing and make melody to the Lord in your heart. You're going to talk to each other, and you're going to talk to God in these melodies. Think prayer. Prayer is a melody to God. God, I want you to get a really good feeling that the Spirit-filled life is a beautiful life because God's not just the author of material things. He's the author of beauty as well. Then giving thanks 
for everything to God, the attitude that we have. He said, this is a spirit-filled life. It's having an attitude of gratitude. And finally, the spirit-filled life looks like submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's the structure of that is he's giving you a command, be filled with the spirit. This is what I want you to do. The spirit's going to unify you. What what does a spirit-filled life look like? Singing, addressing each other in song, singing, making melody in our hearts, giving thanks always, and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the context for how he's going to now launch into, well, what then does it mean, Paul, to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ? But let me pause there and talk about this idea for just a second. There's some powerful ideas in this submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The first hitch, before we even get into the husbands and wives and children and, and all that kind of thing, is this idea of submitting just causes major heartburn in our culture. Well, normally you are told, and we kind of try to dodge that by saying, well, this word for submitting, and there are two used in this passage, two Greek words. We just use one English word, but there are two Greek words here. One is voluntarily subordinating yourself. That's true, but that's not actually the answer to this. That's not the apology to the culture. It is true. We will voluntarily subordinate ourselves to each other out of reverence for Christ. And some people then take that and are going to want to lessen what it says afterwards. I don't want to lessen it in any way. I just want to put it in its right context. Number one, we are filled with the Spirit when we are subordinating ourselves to one another. What does that actually mean? It means it's not all about me. What does gender role look like in the culture? Self-defining, self-definition. What does anything in the Christian life look like, and specifically gender roles? It is not about me. It's me subordinating to you. I will lift you up. Radically different approach. But here's the inconsistency to me in the society. Let's just talk society for a minute, and let's get over our nightmare with this word submitting. You submit all the time in the culture. That, we just don't use that word. But you don't know anybody who doesn't submit daily. Sometimes it's coercive. And I'll give you an example of coercive ways that you submit. The Department of Motor Vehicles. <laughs> when you go and you want to get a driver's license, do you self-experience that? No. Stand in line. And it's going to take a while. And fill out a form. Don't want to do that? Then you don't get a license. Do you understand what I'm saying? You submit coercively to that authority. I'll give you another one. This is still recently on your mind. I'm sure it's a little tender. IRS. If you experience the IRS as oppressive and taxes as something that you do not want to do, you're perfectly willing to experience it however you want to, but they will put you in jail. In other words, you will submit to this, and it is a coercive authority. Does that make sense? That's what laws are and you submit to them all the time. Political correctness, by the way, is becoming a coercive form of submission in our culture. In other words, what you say and what you do, you will be coerced into saying and doing the right things. We submit all the time in our culture. 
So I don't know why this is a dirty word to us. We also submit voluntarily in our culture, constantly. We voluntarily submit to other people. Ever come up to a stop sign and you pull up and the other person pulls up and they have the right of way and they go, you can go. That's voluntary submission. They have the right to go first. If it's all about me, I don't care when I got there. I'm going first. I'm in a hurry. I don't care about your life. It's, that's not what you do. You do this all the time, don't you? You voluntarily subordinate your wishes or desires to somebody else. Think homeowner association. Think PTA. No, it's not coercive. It really is voluntary. You didn't have to live there. But seriously, we, I want you to think about this. We voluntarily subordinate ourselves to organizations' rules all the time. So I, first of all, I just want us to get over the nonsense about, whoa, I don't like this idea of submitting to anybody. You do it all the time. Sometimes coercively, sometimes not. That makes sense? I won't hit that too hard, but I'm just telling you, this is like the big elephant in the room. Everybody submits. So let's get over, over that piece of that. The other is that uh, the basis for these Christian relationships is redemptive. In other words, the idea of submission is out of reverence for Christ. You submit to the government out of fear of retribution. You submit to other people out of sometimes love, sometimes courtesy, sometimes manners, all kinds of things. The Christian idea of role, gender roles is submission to each other not because I am being coerced. This says voluntarily submit yourself to one another. This is the non-coercive form of submission. It says, I'm inviting you to join the homeowners association. Right? I'm inviting you to join the family. We voluntarily submit all the time in our families. In other words, well, I don't really want to do this, but I really don't want to make Aunt Jane really mad. You know, in other words, I'm gonna, we're going to love on Aunt Jane a little bit, and we're all going to go over and eat her you know, fruitcake. It's terrible, but we're going to eat it. In other words, you voluntarily submit a, a lot in those relationships. That's what this is talking about, submitting out of reverence for Christ. It doesn't have anything to do, well, do they deserve it? Well, it's not really the question, is it? Uh, do I, have they earned it? Not the question. Can they punish me? Wrong question. This is non-coercive subordination willingly to some, some other authority, someone else. So it's this, this idea of a redemptive issue. In other words, I'm going to submit for Christ's purposes and not for mine purposes. So this is the context, and I spent the whole time getting here, and that's because people start here, have no idea of context, have no idea of contrast. You see how radically different this is coming from a very different place than our culture is. If you start where our culture is, is gender is not a biologically determined thing, I'll choose it. And gender roles will not be imposed on me by anyone. That's a laughable thing, by the way. You're gonna do an awful lot of submitting to the government whether you like it or not. But the point is, is that if you come from that point of view, this is completely foreign to you. This looks oppressive. It looks judgmental. It looks like a power play. Of course it does, if that's where you come from. If you come from the redemptive hermeneutic, and that is God's purpose in this is not to tell you who's in charge. God's purpose is 
This is what it looks like to, be, to live when you're filled by the Spirit because God's purpose is to bring you into union, unity, is to overcome the alienation between men and women, husband and wives. That makes sense? That's the purpose for this. So here's what he says. He says, you want that to happen? Here, I want you to voluntarily join my family. By the way, remember that theme? Ephesians chapter 1, in love, he predestined us to be adopted into his family. And what's he saying? If you want to join my family, let me tell you how we voluntarily submit to one another in this family. That's the context for this. And so he says, wives, submit, voluntarily submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Well, what if he doesn't know what he's doing? What if he can never seem to go where he needs to go? Our point is, is that you're being called on to voluntarily submit. Does that mean submit, meaning I do all the laundry, he does all the the mowing, that is a culturally conditioned gender role. That is not part of this redemptive hermeneutic. But the redemptive hermeneutic does indeed call for voluntary submission. It says, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now listen to the redemptive idea. Because the purpose here has nothing to do with power, has nothing to do with culture. The husband is the head of the wife, and here's the redemptive model. Christ is the head of the church. Well, you don't have any problem being in the church and submitting to Christ, do you? He's the one who's going to redeem you. He says, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is its savior. Now, as the church voluntarily submits, same word, to Christ, so also wives should voluntarily subordinate them things to their husbands. Now, husbands, here is what leads to unity. Here's your part of the redemptive hermeneutic, and it's also based in the Christ church analogy. Love your wives as Christ loved the church gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, cleanse her by the washing of the word, present the church in splendor, beautiful, radiant, without spot or wrinkle. She might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. The Christian idea of gender roles is rooted in the ultimate goal of uniting what has been alienated. It is not co competition in your marriage, it's cooperation in your marriage. It's not self-fulfillment, make me happy. It's we are going to become one flesh. That's a biblical idea, obviously. The two will become one flesh. In other words, you become reunited, you become harmonious. Cooperation, not competition. You have love, not hostility. You have you, us, instead of me, me, me. Very different goals. This is God's prescription for how to make that come about in your gender uh, relationships. That's what this is about. If you object to that, then object to that. But the society comes from a different place and objects to this and says, oh, this is an old-fashioned way of thinking you're trying to oppress women or you're trying to do something to men. No, actually, God's purpose is, I want to redeem you. And I have shown you an incredible model of Christ loving the church in an incredibly selfish, selfless way and the church subordinating itself to Christ, and you have unity and you have harmony. It is your only hope. He says, and this is what your marriage should look like. Non-Christian people get married to be happy. How many of them are? Statistics say incredibly few are. Christians get married to become holy. In other words, to become 
what God and Christ and the Holy Spirit are, to be reunited in God's original plan of unity. Do you th how far do you think you're going to get when two people come to the marriage and say, not only will I define my gender, I will define my role, I will define what happiness is, and by the way, bub, it's your job to make that happen. Guess what the other person's saying? Hey, dear, I'll define my role, I'll define my, how, how happy do you think that's going to work? Not, and it doesn't. That's not a Christian idea of gender roles, that's not even a slightly Christian idea of marriage or the purpose for marriage. Harmony and unity are, are the basic ideas. Does that make sense? If the culture has an issue with Christian gender roles, let's have this discussion because this is the fair presentation of what the biblical idea of gender roles is all about. It's not about who cuts the grass, not about who does the laundry, it's not about whether it was a patriarchal society 500 years ago, it's not about the fact that in our world that it's a knowledge economy, you know, you can get paid the same as this man because you know what? You can do the same job. It no longer relies on how strong he is or how fast he is or his biology. In a knowledge economy, why wouldn't you? And you see what I'm trying to say? That's a perfectly comfortable idea to Christians. But when we want to talk about making ourselves whole in life, gender roles in marriage, we're going to come to that and say, we want unity, we want holiness, we want peace, we want real life here. We don't want competition and my needs, your needs. No, I get what I want. No, I get what I want. That's not what you want out of life. Here's my argument. This idea of gender roles is a much more coherent idea of gender roles than the I'll define everything for me, you define everything for you, and we'll get married, and we'll get divorced, and we'll get married, and we'll get divorced, and we'll get married, and we'll get divorced. Of course you will. Does that make sense? That's the biblical idea of gender roles. So question is, what then is, can be done about Christians being in sync or out of sync with our society? Are Christians out of sync with the society? Actually, not with a large portion of the society, but Christians are inevitably out of sync with the current trajectory of society. In other words, Facebook, California and Maine laws, etc., I don't think that represents the mainstream. And I think the idea of oppressive male-female relationships doesn't uh, represent the mainstream. I don't think oppressive male-female relationships represents Christianity at all. What you've seen here, you don't see that anywhere. But the idea of gender being self-defining and roles being self-defining and that inherent self-centeredness is inevitably at odds. There's no redemption in this model. There's no design in this model. So yes, we are inevitably at odds with where the culture appears to be heading. I don't think we're inevitably at odds with the culture in general. In other words, the, the main uh, people, especially if we will articulate our view of gender roles in the way that the Bible articulates it. Not a cultural construct, but a, a, pro, a part of God's redemptive purpose for humanity. Okay? Questions? Great, then I have one last point to make. And here's what I want you to carry to your culture. I want you to carry this idea. Do not be pigeonholed into 
uh, protecting or defending and say, well, don't Christians believe that men should always be in charge of women? No, that's not actually what Christians believe. Let me tell you a really beautiful story. You want to have real contentment and unity in your marriage? Let me tell you how to do it. Voluntarily submit yourself to God's redemptive plan. Because you know what? You've got tension in your marriage, don't you? Yes, I do. And how's this me first thing working for you? Well, actually not all that well. Well, God's got a different idea, and it's really coherent. In other words, your gender and your gender roles are prescribed as part of a plan to make you unified and whole and content and joyful. Do you want some part of that? I do want some part of that then voluntarily submit yourself to one another out of reverence for Christ. Why don't you join God's family? And this is how we do things in this family. It's not about me first. It's about wives. Voluntarily subordinate yourself to your husbands. Husbands, love yourselves. And both of you do it in that same redemptive model of what Christ did with the church. I think that's a more coherent story to our culture than this idea about, hey, by the way, my gender has nothing to do with my biology, so don't pay any attention to how I look. And I'll define my own gender roles, and I've got 56 of them that I can choose from. Does that sound coherent to you? This sounds a lot more coherent. You have a great story to tell the culture about what Christians believe about gender roles. And then go live it out in your marriages and go show them what it looks like in gender roles. Okay? So that's your assignment this week. If you are married, understand what your marriage is really about and where the gender roles come from. If you're not, I need you to get married this week and get started on that, okay? I'll see you next time. We'll talk about social justice. Thanks.